Gas. Learned how to work a microphone. Man, it only took 21 episodes. <laughs> you ready? I'm ready. Welcome to the Duke and Duchess podcast. I'm the Duchess. I'm Chad. So welcome to episode 21. 21. Episode 21 of the Duke and Duchess podcast. I'm going to go through our spoiler policy real quick. And the spoiler policy is very simply that Liz has read the books. I have not read the books, so we will not spoil anything through Chapter 86 of The Wise Man's Fear. Right on. Boom. See, the further in we get, the quicker the spoiler policies are. It's true. Well, the the fewer chapters you have left to possibly be spoiled on. That too. That too. So you know most of the stuff there is to know. We're like... Ha- at the ha- little more than the halfway point of Wise Man's Fear. We are. So, yeah. And it's getting pretty exciting. So, what was your overall impression of this section of chapters? Mm, is I. It was, you know, I can't imagine having to stop halfway through the bandit hunt, but you did. You showed some, like, masterful self-control there. It was definitely narrative blue balls. There's no question about it. A- absolutely. Absolutely. So, we tromped around and and it, well, why don't we start by you go ahead and remind everyone what we kind of what happened last week that we discussed. So last week when we started out, we were in Severin. It was kind of the wrap up of everything going great with Mayor Alvaron, everything going great with Lady Lackless. And then we we started the, the episode with a big fight with Denna. And mm-hmm. then Mayor Alvaron coming in and saying, I have a fool's errand for you to run because I want to get you out of town. And then he ran off with these uh, four randos and showed up on a and d adventure marching through the woods. Right. Yeah, that's a good summary. And so on this section, Quoth and his party basically uh, tromp around in circles trying to rack up enough XPs to fight the <laughs> bandit boss. Right. <laughs> That's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty much what happens in yeah. this chapter. And tell a bunch of stories. Yeah, exactly. Which, you know, I you know, I have to say that Patrick Rothfuss, and we say it over and over, I feel like everything in this book is intentional in some way. So I feel like the stories were are going to be important at some point. Yeah, and, and I had that sense reading through it as well. I had the sense, you know, oftentimes I'm like, okay, why are we going into as much detail as we are about this? And then I, I go back through my experiences in other areas and I say, well, there's there's probably a reason. I just haven't put my finger on what it is yet. Right. And there's also an interesting little interlude in this section that we read wherein Bast and Chronicler uh, and Quoth or Coat all kind of talk about the state of the world and taxes and uh, just a couple of random little things. That and one other section of the Bandon Hunt I found pretty cool and the rest of it just seemed kind of like a lot of exposition well and i'll i'll say that the first time i read this this was probably my least favorite part and every time i read it i get a little more out of it so i'm excited to kind of go through chapter by chapter with you yeah let's do it chapter 78 is called another road another forest 
And so we start the scene at the Pennysworth Inn where um, Quoth, and I love this, every time that he smugly and sort of condescendingly describes Dayton and Hespi's like clueless courtship they have going on. He's like, oh, it's so annoying. They just (laughs) both obviously like each other and everyone can tell, but they just won't actually admit it to each other. We know people like that. We know people like that. So it's just, uh, that's always just a little delicious tidbit when you get to see that. But I mean, basically in this chapter, um, Again, the gang is is setting off from the inn and starting to um, figure out how they're going to try and find these bandits in these big-ass old forests. So it was interesting for me in this that we start off again with, well, you know, the little observation about Data and Hespi. Mm-hmm. And then we get another sort of exposition dump of character development. It's interesting because every other place in these books where we've seen characters and and there's been character development, it comes as a result of through dialogue or through plot or some action of the character. It's never just been like, this person was this kind of person and that person was that kind of person. And so the, you know, for me, the first time I read this, that was a big change of tone and it's what kind of put me off. Yeah. The, um, the way I sort of take it, is that most of these characters, Martin, Hespi, Dayton, probably not going to spend a great deal of time with them. But I take it that we probably will spend some more time with Tempe. Like, I have a feeling Tempe's going to stick around. And I'm only saying that on the basis of how he chose to approach the characterization. Whereas with Tempe, one, we spend a lot more time with Tempe. But two, he does tend to sort of meet it out Little bit by little bit over time, you learn more about him in the way that he's typically developed characters. Is you know, he's done the same thing here, but with the other ones, he's just sort of put it out there, blah, this is what they were like, and then we don't get as much build up over time, right? So that's and in the first part of this chapter, again, we get this little exposition dump, and but basically, what it comes to is that Quoth does not feel good about their chances for finding these bandits. Hmm. I mean, he's describing them and then he's kind of like, yeah, basically we've got like this guy who's fucking weird. (laughs) (laughs) Possibly like saves all his hair and toenail clippings. We don't know. Knows how to salt fish. Kind of weird. He's a weirdo. (laughs) Then we have this guy who's who's like a, a stupid jackass and then this chick over here and she's lazy. Like we're, you know, he's basically like, yeah, we're fucked. We're fucked hmm. on this mission. So I, I think that that was sort of like we're, we're we're sort of trying to get this air of a doomed mission here. Um, but they come up with a plan. Yeah, I thought the plan was a pretty good plan. It is a good plan. But it also just sort of highlights how much ground they have to cover. It, it does sort of show the difficulty of the task that they've they've put out there for themselves. And I think it kind of ends in the same note. You know, uh, and we'll talk about that in more detail when we get to, you know, the last chapter. But but it starts out, yeah, breaking down just how much territory they have to cover and the fact that they're really on somebody else's home turf. Right. So they've got what, like something like 400 square miles or something like that. And they're going to be covering like two miles a day. Yeah. Maybe. (laughs) Yeah. It's. I mean, I think they the way that they chose to tackle it the, the plan that quoth put together is 
the best plan they could have come up with for tackling it, at least that I can think of. The other thing it makes me think is that I think they are much more likely to get found than to find the bandits. And that's a pretty good assumption. I mean, when he puts it out there, how much ground they have to cover, it seems like a very impossible task. A couple of things made me chuckle on this read through. One was, first of all, just in the plan, the plan was for Martin, the tracker, to scout ahead. And then Tempe and both were going to kind of come behind him. And they talked about what's going to happen if one of us gets captured. What's going to happen if the bandits find us? We don't find them. Yeah. And Kvothe says, okay, well, you know, if you can fight them, do it. But if you can't, go with them and pretend like you want to join up with them and convince them. But don't don't try to get... So he gives them some, like, tips on lying. Yeah, yeah. And he's very just like... <laughs> You know, no uh, fanfare. Yeah. Here you go. Nah, Never lie about name. your name. Yeah. That's you won't be able to do that. Yeah. That's advanced level lying. Nobody yeah. try don't that. Don't try that. You yeah. know, don't try to escape the first night because they'll expect it. Don't try and escape the second night. Wait till the third night. He just he's really like cool as a cucumber. Knows so, how to lie. It's funny you say that and you use the term like don't lie about your name. That's advanced level lying because it immediately causes me to think of Denna, who we know mm-hmm. is not. You know, she's constantly using other people's names, you know, to the point where he's had to go along with that as well and call her by different things. You know, so I guess she's an advanced level liar. We know she. Well, yeah, we already know that. We know she is. But that's a that's a really good point. So the other thing that really made me laugh was the the Tempe and Dayton face off. Yeah, they have a dick measuring contest. That was a pretty that was a pretty funny. And for me, that did more in developing these characters and making me like them than any of the kind of exposition dumps we've had before. Yeah. So like Tempe is sitting there being quiet and weird and Dayton thinks he can just he's calling him stupid. He's just kind of mocking him and Tempe just kind of comes up and gets really close to him and looks at him. And is able to block all of Dayton's moves. And I can just so picture, like, and he just is able to reach up and smack him on the side of the yeah. head. Yeah. You know, but then Dayton goes in like he's going to punch him really slow and kind of oafishly and turns it at the last minute and actually turns out to be more of a clever and a quick fighter than they thought. Yeah, which gives even more credibility to to the ADEM and, and their fighting style because Dayton is no chump. He's no pushover. Exactly. And then when he does get a hand on Tempe, Tempe laughs and is, is delighted that someone that he managed to, to, to land a blow to, touch him, to yeah. his shoulder. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they get they closer. It out. So that little, that little interaction did way more for me than the descriptions of yeah, the who only, was wearing what armor and such. The only other notes I had for this chapter were the comments that quote said about the Lathani. He said, I know the Lothani is just a piece of storybook nonsense, which, of course, means it's not. And and it just reminds me of how worldly this kid thinks he is throughout all these stories. So worldly. He knows so (laughs) much about the world. Right. Because he's Adam Aru and he's, (laughs) you know, and he's lived in a wagon all his life. Mm -hmm. But he just always has this assumption that he knows more than everybody else. And... I'm certain we're going to find out, of course, that it's not storybook nonsense. The one thing I'll say is in this section, and and the thing I liked most about this section is I think you start to see a little bit of that crack in him. You know, at the end of this chapter, he says, 
you know, but given the things I'd seen at the university, things I'd seen Elodin do, maybe it wasn't so crazy after all. Right. You know, so you're just starting to see a little bit of that fade away. And then we have more of that at the end of the section. Right. Well, and we have also at the end of the section, another reminder of how deeply superstitious the vintage are. Yeah. Because I think both makes a, a joke about, well, if the bandits capture me, I'll just kill them all. Kill and them no all. problem. And they all are like, okay, man. <laughs> they, like, they don't get the joke at all. <laughs> I also love when they're they're making this plan and what's going to happen when the bandits get, or if the bandits capture one of them. And Quill says, they say, well, what, how will, how will you track us? And he, he says, I can find any of you. <laughs> That's not ominous. <laughs> I always know where you are. <laughs> Nothing freaky about that at all. <laughs> well, and also I, th- I thought it was funny that they said, well, what if they catch you? Right. And he's like, I hadn't, I hadn't really thought about that. <laughs> you know, and he goes, so he's like, ah, they'll probably let me go. You know, but it was just that he, in one hand, I guess it kind of shows that he's thinking about other people and he's attempting to show leadership. And I think he does a good job overall of saying, okay, what are you going to do if this happens and kind of preparing people? But interesting that he doesn't take the time to put himself through the same theoretical exercise. I just know next time I'm making plans with someone, I'm going to try and work that in. I always can find you. (laughs) (laughs) I always know where you are. Hey, so where are we going to meet up? Don't worry. I'll find you. (laughs) (laughs) You keep saying that. (laughs) It's funny because it's true. It's freaking me out, man. (laughs) All right. So chapter 79 is called Signs. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So in this chapter, Martin is teaching Tempe and Quoth how to track. And that is the end of my notes for this chapter. <laughs> well, I have a couple more. Okay, good. So again, we, <laughs> see, one of us has something we to say. see highlighted and it keeps coming up the reaction to sympathy that people at, from outside of the university have. Yeah, this is where he has the twig. Yes. Yeah, so... Both hands Martin a twig. They're trying to come up with a way to signal each other without yelling across the without woods. yelling yeah. across the mm-hmm. forest. So he does this the twig trick that he had done with his friends in the university many times. You hold this bit of the twig, I'll hold this one, and we'll make it jump. When Martin drops it like like it was a snake, yeah, he's like, what the hell? Like you would, like you would. And uh, both is just like, oh right, it's okay. But it's just interesting because I think it it highlights how different the university is from the rest of the world and how this is not that wheelhouse anymore. It's just interesting to see this character have to operate outside of. Yeah. And and again, it goes to the comment that I made in the last chapter about how worldly Quoth thinks that he is. But really, if you look at where he's lived, he lived on a wagon train with Edamaru, not a normal experience for most people. Right. He lived as a beggar in Tarbian, probably not a normative experience for most people in this world. He lived at the university, definitely not a normal experience for most people in the world. He lived in Mayor Alvaron's estates. So when has he, when has he shown the kind of normal everyday existence that would lead him to feel like 
he has any right to be worldly about any of this stuff, you know. He, he never has. He's never lived a normal life. Right. And it also gives us a perspective on a, how all of the non-university-based characters react. You know, when we think things like, why didn't Mayor Alvaron just get, you know, why don't you just go grab over, another, go yeah. grab another Arcanist or phone the yeah. university. Send a raven. Yeah, send a raven to the university yeah. and figure... No, that's just, that's like not, the interaction between the university and the wide world is very small. And most people don't react to arcanists with, in a positive way. Yeah. So it's, it's a lot of superstition and misunderstanding, and particularly in this part of the world. And that just keeps on getting kind of drilled in, in these couple of chapters. Yeah, and it, it also reminds me of the story Alxadal told about the ignorant Edema. Right. You know, and just how out of character that, uh, what's the word of the arcanist was in the greater wide world. And that's really kind of what we see with Quoth. Right. So, and Quoth is trying to calm Martin's fears about having the stick jump in his hand. Mm -hmm. And something very interesting happened to me while I was reading that this time. Really? (laughs) So he's got a quote here. And he's talking and he says, nothing in the world is harder than convincing someone of an unfamiliar truth. Mm. And that really stuck with me. I was like, wow, that's like a really wise and timely saying. Yeah. So I read that. I'm like, wow, that's a really clever and it's really like fits. I don't know. It could be used so many ways. And I'm like, that Patrick Rothfuss is so clever. And then I was like, and then I, I was like, oh, wait, no, he's quoting someone. He's quoting Techum. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, no, wait, he is Techum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's that's he's still smart because he I made Tekum like, wow, up. He's really smart. Oh no, he's just quoting this other guy. Oh, but he made up that other. Guy, yeah. So <laughs> you're smart, Patrick Rothfuss. He's all right. <laughs> but that's in this chapter. So and also, Quoth is as bad at tracking as he is at alchemy. Yeah. So that's kind of funny. It's just funny to see him like kind of floundering a little bit and kind of being made an ass of. By Martin is like I just, I'm thinking of the scene where he and Tempe see like a branch or something and they're all excited. Yeah, and they're like come back, come back, and he's like, oh good, you found it, and they're like, okay, so the bandits must be this way, and he's like, oh no, <laughs> I left that to just keep you interested and make sure just, you're not zoning out. It's like, what we call breadcrumbs. Exactly. <laughs> they're like ah, oh. and I think at that point, I love this interaction. At that point, Quoth sort of starts to despair a little bit yeah i picked up on that he was i think that's where i felt like he was really beginning to to doubt their chances right he's like oh my gosh like how how this is impossible and at that point martin sets up a little wager for them and kind of makes it into a game and for me that helps give some insight into martin's character yeah and he he probably should have been the guy to lead this right and i kind of like how Quoth isn't always the one to bring everyone together. He isn't always the one. Like, he was the one kind of despairing, and Martin here steps in and somehow makes it fun. And Yeah, and he's not always the guy with all the ideas. Right, and so then at that night, he's telling. they start telling stories, and that kind of frames the next couple of chapters. Yeah, because chapters. in every chapter at night, they sit around and they tell stories. Right, and I have one last quote from this chapter at the very end that just gave me feels. All right. But they're telling stories, and um, and he says, It was a familiar story, and listening to it reminded me of days long gone, back when I had a home and a family. So you where got this, soft on me, Duchess. 
<laughs> Orphan Quoth makes me sad. Big old softy. Makes me sad. He's not real. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so chapter 80? Yes. But so no, I, the last thing I have to say about that is that I just think it's interesting that we've seen this character go from, you know, at home with his family to homeless to kind of finding another sort of surrogate family to then he had this sort of exciting adventure and now he's back on uneven ground again and not around anyone that he's connected to. Yeah. So it's just been, it's interesting. And I think that's part of the purpose of this whole Mm. meandering part of the, of the story. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Something for me to keep in mind. Chapter 80 is called tone. Okay. What'd you think? Tone or tome? Tone. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. I mean, it, it's kind of more of the same. I did I did have, uh, I, I did enjoy this a little bit more because we're getting a little bit more of character interaction between Quoth and Tempe. And this is where they begin to learn. Quoth picks up that Tempe, part of his odd behavior is because he doesn't speak a turn very well. And that's, he's struggling to understand things and express himself. Right. And then he wants to learn Ademic. So they start teaching each other the language. And that was, you know, fairly interesting. So so I enjoyed that part of it. And then the other kind of note I have here is, Quoth finally realizes how completely useless his loot is on a bandit hunt. <laughs> I am... I had not thought of it that way, but you are so right. Well, even You're when he's so right. And now, now how's he going to play it? Yeah, right. Not that I fault him for getting it. No, I understand why he didn't want to leave it in Severin. Like, of course. But, you know, the whole time I'm like, here he is traipsing around with this big ass loot, you know, in a big ass bulky loot case on what is supposed to be this like clandestine sneaking stealth around mission stealth mission right i'm like you know do you have a bag of holding to put that in because <laughs> you know i mean it's like trying to carry a double base on an airplane it's just like <laughs> it's a little out of place right you know but anyway that's funny well you're the musician so that would occur to you i'm just assuming that yes he's got it's like the bag of holding yeah it's so I found this chapter a little more interesting this time around, too, because I really started thinking about what we learn about the Edemic culture from their language. And I think it's so fascinating. And Patrick Rothfuss is really into languages. And he does a good job of of explaining it. Right. And so he's they're starting to learn. And this is Quill's fourth language that he's learned. So he's picking it up. Fucking braggart. Right. So he's he's picking up the vocabulary like he does, but he's struggling with um, words that to him sound the same, but Tempe is telling him, no, they're different. And then he realizes it's the tone, hence the title of the chapter. Yeah, he says it's the cadence, which that just, that caught me a little bit strange because that is something that somebody who really anybody can pick up on that. But somebody especially who's a musician should have been able to pick up on the cadence part of it right away. 
Unless it was extremely subtle changes in the cadence. It, it must have been. It, it must have been extremely subtle. Or, or maybe it was more of a tone thing than a cadence thing, and maybe maybe you could have used a better word to explain it. I don't know. It, it's a minor point. I'm certainly not going to belabor it. I thought it was fairly clever to show some of the subtle distinctions in that it's not as easy as just learning a bunch of words and slapping them together. Well, and I believe the word that was in question was the word, it looks like it was spelled freight. Yeah. F-R-E-A-H-T maybe. Yeah. So short word, I think it would be harder to hear changes in cadence True. If in a one syllable word. It sounds like a one syllable word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. So what that says to me is there's a lot more to the edemic culture that, well, we know that there's a lot more than we know because we don't know anything, but that this is a very subtle and nuanced culture. And I like this device for a world building thing. Right. So I thought it was fairly interesting there. The other part that I took note of that I thought was probably the most interesting part of that whole exchange for me was that Quoth attempts to get him to explain the word for song. What's the edemic word for song? He doesn't understand. And so Quoth sings, and Tempe seems sort of taken aback. And then he, you know, Quoth kind of pushes him. So do you sing? What's the word for sing? And he gets, man, Tempe don't sing. Right, he does not sing. Does not sing, right? And then I had this vision in my head. Do you remember the movie Adventures in Babysitting? Do I remember Adventures in Babysitting? Of course you do, right? Of course I do. So do you remember the uh, part? I got Nobody the babysitting got... blues. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody get out of this place without singing the blues. <laughs> So I'm imagining Tempe sitting in the bar, you know, having a drink, getting ready to leave. Hey, hey, hey. Nobody leave this place without singing the blues. And then in the next frame, everybody in the bar is laying on the floor with ice on their head and Tempe's walking out of the bar. That's exactly what would happen. Yeah, he's not singing. I, I kind of need to see this now. <laughs> right. We need a uh, Adventures of Babysitting, King Killer Chronicles mashup. That's a stat. That sounds brilliant. <laughs> I like to see it in comic form. So Absolutely. That's just my personal request. <laughs> but but then it you know, why doesn't he why doesn't he sing? Is singing sacred? Mm. Is singing something that is reserved for women? Those are the sort of speculations I had. Those are good speculations. I don't know. I don't know. You're gonna find out. Is that a spoiler? Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> You never find out. Patrick Rothfuss puts us out here, and he never tells us why the why uh, it could come Tempe up in the third sing. book. Damn it! I'm so bad at this. You're doing fine. Okay. You're doing fine. It's we, it's damn near should, impossible to talk about it and not give some sort of subtle spoilers away. So it's not the year that I wrote out a list of what I was getting you for Christmas, and then I left it on the desk. <laughs> no, it's not as bad as that. All right, good. <laughs> no, it's not as bad as all that. And you pretended to be surprised anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you had good ideas, so I didn't feel the need to correct you. So chapter 81 is called The Jealous Moon. More moon references. We got a lot of moon mm-hmm. references in this section. Yeah. I still don't have any, I still have yet to put them together. Mm-hmm. To know what any of it means, but a lot of moon references. So once again, in the beginning of this chapter, we have Quoth 
making fun of Dayton and Hespi yep. for not knowing that they like each other. And uh, in fact, he says, so he says that Hespi is telling a story and that he can tell by the way she's looking at Dayton that when she's talking about the love that the queen had for her king that, you know, he, how can he not see it? And then he says, and then with a folly I have rarely seen equaled, Dayton tells a story about Florian. He hasn't been reading his own press clippings. He has not been reading his own press clippings. <laughs> uh, that just made me chuckle. So, yeah. Dayton tells a story about Florian. And goes into lots of detail about her female fey form. Yeah, apparently she's pretty hot. She's a hot fey succubus. Right. Yeah, basically. So, and then Tempe is there to be like, Florian, I've never heard of this Florian. Tell me what it is, you know? How, how does she kill people? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So we kind of get the skip. Well, now, we've Ensign heard Taggart, this is how the faster than light speed drive works. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So we've heard about her before this. We've heard the name. We've heard the name Florian. Yeah. We've heard people compared to Florian. But uh, now we kind of get this. Who Who is she? And who is this? What is the story of her? Yeah, a little bit more. You know? f- well, fleshed out at all, actually. Yeah. Right. And again, I, I feel like all these stories are intentional somehow. Yeah. And, I, and my ears pick. I, I pay special attention in general to the stories within a story. Because it's just, it's such a trope, and there's always hints dropped in those things, or symbols, or foreshadowing, and it's a convention I've always loved, so I find that, you know, like, you're super jazzed about, like, the magic system and how cool it is, and it is. I'm just stoked about all the stories within the stories. Like, we get so many of them in in, in this whole series. Like, I love it, you know... I love it in A Song of Ice and Fire, all the old Nan stories, mm-hmm. the, you know, the the brand chapters that everybody else is like, oh, God, you know, yeah. I love them, you know. So for me, this is super interesting. The stories in this section, I had a harder time relating back to anything else, um, but my ears did perk up around the Florian and I put a pin in it for future listening, but I couldn't really glean a great deal of information out of it. Well, what stuck out to me was that Dayton says that this is a story that was told to him by a boy who was local, who lived in the area. And he starts off by saying that everyone in this part has a fear of this part of the woods because Mm. they all say that it's close to the Fae and that this part of the world is close to the Fae. And so that seemed significant. Yeah, and it all does seem to kind of generally be building in that direction. Right. The other thing I liked and and that led me to believe that there was some credibility to the story, that it wasn't just, I mean, it's all a story because it's in a story that's not real, but um, was how Dayton was able to sing back the melody of the song along with the words in a foreign language from memory. And quote leads us to believe that this guy is not, you know, some sort of musician or linguist. So he's probably not making it up on the spot. Well, and Dayton even says, that's how I, that's why I feel this boy's story is true because he sang that song to me once and I've never forgotten it. Yeah. Yeah. And quote, who has heard all the stories, most of the songs does not recognize the tune nor the language. Yeah. So that's interesting. It is. It's all very interesting. So yeah, it, I can't relate it to anything, 
but it's but it's cool. The only other note I have is at the end of the track, uh, excuse me, at the end of the chapter, Martin says, "Attractive as some things are, you have to weigh your risks." Yes. How badly do you want it? How badly are you willing to be burned? And then quoth lay down and thought of Denna. Yep. You know, it's interesting because that's pretty much the last thing we heard Denna saying to the young woman that she was trying to counsel. Yeah, that's what, you know, the the, the language and about, you know, how badly do you want to be burned caused me to think about it. And then when he lays down and his mind drifts off to Denna, I'm thinking, okay. Now, I guess my question is, that seems, you know, like a fairly obvious allusion to what's going on between Quoth and Denna. Is is there a another side to this or another meaning to it that I'm not picking up on? Or is it what I think it is? Well, for me, it makes me think of the greater story of Quoth as he becomes Coat. And hmm, good point. what did he want badly enough that he was willing to be burned badly enough to become what he's become? I still think it all goes back to Denna. I mean, that seems the obvious answer to me as well. But. Well, with with the the exception of, you know, getting the answers to the Amir and the Chandrian. Right. But I, I, you know, that's kind of like a revenge thing that I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, we've said in the past, you know, particularly towards the end of The Name of the Wind, that when you kind of put his priorities, you know, you put his priorities out there, that the Amir and the Chandrian is the one thing that'll cause him to drop everything. Right. And, and no matter what, and take off. So does he, is that a clue to us that that's the one thing? Would it shock you if looking into the Amir and the Chandrian caused him to get burned badly? No. Nope. Not at all, you know? So, but I still somehow think it's going to be Denna more than, more than that. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. So chapter 82 is called Barbarians. Yeah, it's funny. The way we've been reading it, I've been essentially reading all the chapters in like one sitting. You have. Because it's been getting it's been getting good. Right. And so we'll we'll wrap up the podcast and I'll be like, finally I can read. Yeah. And I'll go and I'll just read all of them that night and stay yep. up to like two o'clock in the morning and regret it. And then <laughs> You know, and then I'll have to spend the rest of the week on, you know, and, and not being able to, to read ahead. But in this one, I I had I showed a little bit of restraint. I read through chapter 81, and then I put the book down. I saw the chapter. It said barbarians. And I thought, all right, we're going to get to meet some barbarians. <laughs> Bring me all the barbarians. <laughs> Bring them on. Like a total dumbass. <laughs> I mean, what no. is this party missing? You got a ranger. <laughs> yeah. You got a mercenary. Yeah. You know, Quoth is a bard. Yeah. You need a barbarian. Yeah. Like, no, that's not what it was. <laughs> We're all the barbarians. We're the barbarians. Uh, look inside yourself if you want to find the barbarian. <laughs> like a child, all children are barbarians. <laughs> I love that line. I, actually, I liked it too. Because it's really true. <laughs> it's really true. That's a good point. We call our children the horde. Because <laughs> when true. they all try to run up the stair, they're more like zo- like a zombie horde. Uh, no, I I think of them as like a Mongol horde. 
Well, just think about when they're all trying to go up the stairs at the same time and they're kind of tumbling over top of each other. And it's like this. <laughs> it reminds me of like World War Z when the zombies just, are crawling up over the wall. Just That's stepping how our on children each other's go heads. Up. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, Either way, they're barbarians. Yeah. Yeah. No for question. sure. No question Ad- about it. Adorable barbarians. So barbarians, as as we've said, it turns out that to Tempe, everyone is a barbarian. So we've You're learned that bar- a bunch of heathens around here, <laughs> uncultured swine. So we've already learned that Tempe bathes every day, no matter what, mm-hmm. like a weirdo. <laughs> These Swedes are very clean. So clean. <laughs> Well, yeah, Kvothe is like, yeah, man, he takes a bath every day. Every day. We take a bath if we go to an inn, maybe. (laughs) Maybe if we have a hot date. So. How many times did he walk back from Emory to the university to see Denna and wonder why he couldn't get any? Take a bath, Take a bath, man. (laughs) He's a teenager. Teenage boys don't take baths. I took a lot of baths when I was that age. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> okay. For totally different reasons. All right. <laughs> so anyway, in this chapter, Kvothe and Tempe teach each other language. And, and it gets beyond the words. Right. So this, I loved this part because, well, first we start off with and let's just mention, Quoth makes mommets of yeah. everyone in the party. So yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah. we just got to remember that, that he's done that. That's going to well, and, somehow. And I um, I remarked in the last section that I wondered when the whole boot wax was going to come up. And my prediction is that he's going to somehow need to make another mommet. He's going to lose one of them, or he's going to need to make a, mar- a mommet of some barbarian tax-collecting, killing bandit, and he's not going to have the wax to do it. We'll see. No, we ain't going to see. That's what's going to (laughs) happen. So I loved how Quoth and... So Quoth and Tempe are teaching each other language, and Quoth is purposefully making a lot of mistakes so that Tempe has more of a chance to practice his deterrent. I just thought that was a cool little... Oh, it was on purpose. Oh, I didn't really catch that it was on purpose. It's kind of subtly stated, but he was saying how, like, the more mistakes I made, the more Tempe had to practice his turn. So naturally, I made, I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, now, now that you say that, I can, I can pick that up, but I didn't read it that way the first time. That's cool. That is kind of a cool thing. And so at one point, Tempe comes out and he makes a motion after he's pulled a tick off of his body and he's grossed out. And both realizes that, oh, wait, the ADEM smile with their hands they have blank facial expressions because all of their expressions are done through hand motions and it's a whole new layer yeah that's why they don't make eye contact exactly because what's the point of making eye contact if nobody uses facial expressions and i just love it i mean patrick rothfuss has come up with a really unique language that is unique and a a unique culture yeah absolutely what was that group of um the group of people in Wheel of Time, the the desert dwellers, the IL. The IL, yeah. You know, and he was trying to make his own, but they were really a Fremen ripoff. 
Right. I mean, and we've seen this sort of Fremen type yeah, and these culture. Are like, <clears throat> it's these almost are like cold weather trope, Fremen. You know, yeah. but but this is you know this is different than so many of these other sort of weird outsider stoic heroic warrior cultures right but there's always this warrior culture in all these fantasy novels right. you they know? live in a remote place yeah or they're you know like the unsullied or something but but this is definitely unique i mean it's not what you typically see and and i like the depth we get out of it so yeah i thought that was cool right so and it's also kind of a secret which and so a quote that i wrote down was i've always had a weakness for secrets Mm-hmm. it's true but my favorite quote from the chapter when Tempe is talking about civilization he's trying to come up with the word civilization why do you say you know it means and he says civilization is means that nobody shits in the well yeah <laughs> that's a that's a good way to put like, it yeah that's a really yeah. good way to put it yeah yeah so the next chapter is um, called lack of sight Something pretty cool occurs to quote from this chapter. Yeah, yeah. So this was this so is this, I, I this is my like favorite part of the chapter of right. the of the section so far, and it um it, it kind of uh, if you don't mind I'll give the story. Do it, section. yeah. So it, it's all about storytelling, you know, at the campsite around the fire and their and their storytelling, and it starts off with Martin telling a story about Taverlin the Great, and it's you know pretty much what we've heard before, a little bit more detail, and then. They want Quoth to tell a story. And he was thinking about this for a while because he's kind of getting tired of being the the one that everybody relies on for telling stories. At least that's what he says. This is the only story we ever hear him tell. But anyway, so he tells this story about a little boy born with a screw in his belly. But really, it's just a joke. And Tempe's the only one who gets it. Then at the end, he has a, Martin kind of calls him out on it like... What's the deal with it? And he kind of explains that that's the way his father would would kind of give him these brain teasers. And then in the middle of telling it to Martin, he has this massive revelation that that's what Elodin had been trying to do. Like, me, you, and every other motherfucker reading this book is like, yes, you idiot. For fuck's sake, this is what we've been trying to tell you. <laughs> but you're a character right. on a page and you can't hear. Like... <laughs> Jesus, thank God you finally got it. Right. You know? So yeah, that was the chapter summary. Right. So I thought that that would be a nice moment for you. Yeah, it was a, f- the story was hilarious. That is exactly my kind of joke. It's so too. funny. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my kind of joke too. One that goes a long and then way. Fell off. And then his ass fell off. <laughs> yeah. And then he and then he held up the blue brick. It's like yeah, it's like the pig in the cork joke. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, we're not going to tell you those jokes. Not yet. <laughs> oh goodness! So, so yeah, the joke was hilarious. And as I'm reading the story the first time, you know, I talked about the story within a story thing. I'm like, I'm scratching my head. I'm like, I'm looking for hints. I'm like. Is this saying something about the king of Modag that I need? Like, I'm really trying to look for the other layer in it because I, I realize now that, you know, I miss so many of the layers of the stories that he's told in the past, like, you know, the Natalia Lockless and other and other things like that, you know. So I'm like, 
What does the golden screw mean? Why does the king of Modeg have a golden pillow with a golden screwdriver? Like, <laughs> is this something I'm like? I gotta. What's going on in Modeg? Is it does is Fela's family from Modeg? Like I'm, you know. And then no, the the thing we're supposed to finally get is really not even for us. It's Quoth finally realizing what Eladin's been trying to do this whole time. Right, which is set him on a quest for answers in his own way. Yeah, which is where he is. Exactly. You know? he's And he's living on the edge. Yes! He's on... Sorry, I was so excited <laughs> that I flailed and smacked the microphone because... And I'm not going there yet, but the next chapter is called The Edge of the Map. Yeah. And how... Now I'm squeezing my hands really fast because I'm excited. (laughs) But it just occurred to me how brilliant is that, that it ends with him realizing, oh, this is what Elodin has been trying to teach me. Yeah. And then you turn the page and it's the edge of the map. And and Martin has to school him a little bit. Right. Yeah. So, and I also want to talk about the story of Taborlin the Great that we start this chapter off with. I'm sorry, I flipped back too far in my notes because I was so excited about all of that. Oh, goodness. I'm flummoxed. <laughs> I mean, there's a fair amount to talk about for a section of chapters where nothing happens. Exactly. So we keep coming back to this story of Taborlin the Great in the same words over and over. This is like several times we've heard this story, and each time we hear a little bit more. So we've heard the part of the story where he's locked and he speaks to the stone, but Taborlin knew the name of stone. And so he spoke to the stone and said, break in the stone. You know, yeah, yeah. we've heard that a couple of times. And With the same diction, the same exactly. word order, everything the same. So you can, you can just picture this is getting passed down from person to person in the same tone and, and, and everything. But this time, I feel like we hear a little bit more. So we hear this story is Taborlin. He's captured by King Skyphus. And... He's lost his staff and his sword, and without them, his power was all dim and guttery. And it just, there's such an echo of Quoth and what happens to him. Yeah. You know, so he's lost something, and it's made his power dim and guttery. So we know, mm. like, Coat has some power. But it's not. But it's not. It's, it's not Quoth. So he's lost something. Because his alar got shattered like Ramston steel. Right. So he's lost he's lost his whatever, his symbolic staff. He ain't got his mojo. And his sword. He's lost his mojo. And he's lost his He got cloak. a black cat bone. And Quoth says This is the blues he, episode. I'm sorry, say it again. No, there's nothing to say. I'm just interrupting you to do it at this point. I'll shut up now. If it was a worthwhile joke, I would have kept going. <laughs> but it's not. So sometimes I forget I'm talking to grown-ups. <laughs> and like... You mean everybody else you're talking to right now. Yeah. You don't mean me. No, no, no. I t- you're taking that the wrong way. Oh, okay. I just mean like, you know, when a kid interrupts me, I give them this like glare, you know, this <laughs> like look, and I just gave it to you and I'm, I apologize. Because... No, it was okay. I was being a dick on purpose. Okay. In that case, you're allowed to glare. In that case... Glare on. I'm doing it right now. Can you all hear it? <laughs> it's coming through the microwave loud and clear. Did I just say microwave? Who doggy? <sighs> <laughs> Onward and upward. 
You were saying? Uh, was I? Yes. Okay. So he's telling a story of Taborlin. Taborlin has lost his staff and his sword. His power is dim and guttery. And he's lost his cloak. And he says the cloak was the heart of Taborlin. And we know how important cloaks are to both as well. And so for me, I just like sat and read this a couple of times because I feel like the story of Taborlin keeps coming back. It's going to be important. It's going to be either as a foreshadowing or, or something of, of what's happening to our main character. Yeah, you're right. And then we get a story about a boy whose ass falls off. <laughs> we have to tell that to the kids tomorrow. That's with the same language? No. We say his donkey fell off. Because <laughs> we're good parents. Exactly. You want to talk about a parenting moment? You know what I did this weekend? What? I sat on this couch next to our six-year-old, and we watched David Lynch's Dune <laughs> together. <laughs> that movie is bad donkey. It's real bad donkey. And you know what? She didn't flinch. Oh, my God. <laughs> he tells me these things while we're podcasting, <laughs> so I can't kill him. <laughs> oh, you knew that was going on. You knew that was going on. All right, so edge of civilization. He's on the edge of the map. So after Quoth finally makes Tempe laugh with his ass falling off the boy story, Mm -hmm. um, and something kind of changes a little bit between them. So up until now, Quoth has been copying Tempe's exercises in the morning. Tempe's doing sort of a kata. He calls it the ketan. And... Quoth is just sort of behind him, like, trying to, like, do it, too. And Tempe's just completely ignoring him. And at this point, though, Tempe turns around and makes one of, makes, fixes one of his mistakes. And Quoth says he realizes now, at the time, he took it as a great compliment. But he realizes later that it was much more than just a compliment. Mm-hmm. So it gives you the sense that somehow what him teaching him this is going to end up being a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, then the whole section, it's not a very long chapter, but there's a whole section where Martin is talking about how maps don't just have outside edges. Well, he said, well, they come upon that because he finds a tree that is so averse to human contact that if you even look at the damn thing, it falls apart. Right. Just poof implodes on you, you know? And he says, it's been years since I've seen one of these, you know, and, and kind of lets the reality of that sink in for the guys. Like we are past where normal humans go. You know, we might be stepping where nobody else has stepped before. Right. And that also means that if these bandits do catch us and kill us out here, they will never ever in a million years find us. Yes. So once again, kind of an impossible task that the mayor has sent him on. And a, and a dangerous task. To a place where no one will ever find his bones. Yep. May, yeah, the mayor sent him to a place where no tale could ever survive, you know, uh, quote, you know, and, and with the intention that Quoth would either take that bag of silver and leave, in which case he would never come back, or he would go off on this mission and die. Right. Or somehow he kills the bandits and then win-win. Yeah, exactly. 
So yeah, Quoth is kind of based with the full realization of what is going on and mm-hmm. that, that, wow, he's really up against it right now. Yeah. And that's when Martin explains that there are, you know, edges to maps and Quoth is like, we're nowhere close to the edge of the map. Right. You know, worldly 16 year old Quoth that he is. And then Martin explains, no, 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 no. Just because there's a section on the map with a splat of green paint on it doesn't mean anybody's really been here. You know, this is, we are in an, a hole in the map that nobody's been to. You're, you're stepping on virgin ground. And I love how you pointed out what Elodin said about the edges being the best place for growth and to learn things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dun, and dun. Yeah, and I don't remember... I wish I could remember specifically what it was that made me think this, but I wrote down the note, you know, if we're at the edge of the map, are we closer to the Fey? You know, we have this tale of Felurian, and we know that, you know, it just leads me to believe that we're getting closer to his interaction with the Fey. Well, and we've learned that this part of the woods has is known for supposedly being close to the Fey. Yeah. Or having fairies or come around and yeah. all that. So, right. So the next chapter is an interlude. And it's an interesting way to kind of talk about, I don't know, governmental systems and... and <laughs> we really want to talk about taxes. Welcome to Econ 307. <laughs> Here we are talking about historical taxes today and an historical taxing system in the world of... Um, you'd stop me at any time, please. So in this interlude, the story is interrupted by Mary and Hap and their children. They come in and they want to use chronicler services to set down a will. And there's a very adorable and hilarious. Oh, my goodness. Story. I so want somebody to draw a picture of Bast holding that baby at arm's length. Right. Yes. Like, I want to see that so bad. <laughs> I'm sure it's out there somewhere that I, that I just haven't, I haven't seen it yet. But, oh, send it to me, folks. I got to see it. And it's kind of funny, too. So Mary and Hap come in. She hands the baby over. Like, oh, can you just hold this baby for a minute? And it's all, you know, kind of awkward. And mm-hmm. Quill starts singing a little song, doing a little rhyme with him. And it, the last line is baby, give your daddy a hug. And he just kind of looks at Bass like, are you the daddy? And yeah. and Bass is like, he's, he's blonde. He's blonde. For fuck's sake, man. <laughs> I don't put it everywhere. Oh, no, he did put it in Mary. I mean, oh. that's that was the strong implication. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because he says that she wrote him letters. Oh, okay. I missed that. Okay. Right. So, oh yeah, that's right. So we know Bass has been everywhere, but the baby's not his because it's blonde. Bass would never have a blonde kid. No way. The seed is strong. The seed is strong. So anyway, that was a, that was just kind of a cute little interaction. Yeah, that was funny. And Chronicler comes back and and tells him that he didn't charge them very much because both asked and he says, "Yeah, this this family's on hard times." And I liked how Bass says, "Do you want me to go break the fence again?" Rushy. Yeah, I love that. So they've now been breaking the some, fence. Yeah. yeah. Which is what the the chapter's called, right? You know. Right. Um now we'll have to come up with something more creative this time. They'll catch on to us, you know. Right. Like 
But um, no, I mean, and, and I think that shows, you, we saw a little bit of that in the very beginning of Name of the Wind, but just how much he kind of cares for the people of this town. And, and again, that for all the weird shit that Quoth does and where his moral compass is dodgy sometimes, he's, he's a good person. Right. You know? Right. And you need that to balance, you know, you, you need do. these reminders to balance how uh, easily he goes ahead and makes moments of everyone in his traveling party steals hair surreptitiously whatever (laughs) doesn't think twice about it now the other part that i that i picked up was when they were talking about the taxes they say you know the bleeders will be the ones coming for the next tax levy Mm. and they appear to be different from the regular tax collectors so i'm assuming these are like the tax collectors that work directly for the king possibly it doesn't really detail what precisely that is yeah and this interlude really highlights for us how little we know about what the current political situation is what's going on in the world outside of this town yeah and that and that is still frustrating to me that you know and i i i I see that third book as being the one that sort of fills the gap right between you know where we are and all these sort of current situations and and who's the king who got killed, and who's the penitent king, and all these things in that third book. But it's got a lot of ground to cover. And it's, it's a very interesting storytelling perspective, because in most fantasy novels, there's a rebellion, and there's a king who's killed, and the story is told from the top down, like what's happening to the most important people. Yeah. But in this case, it's being told from the perspective of the least important. Yeah. Even though Quoth is central to the the happenings of the rebellion or whatever it was that happened, we don't hear, we haven't heard yet his perspective on what happened there. Mm -hmm. All we know from the world is from the perspective of these simple townspeople and how it's affecting them. We don't get from you know, Shep and Jake, we don't get them walking in and and really giving you, you know, a lot of blow by blow details. You don't get like a nuanced, you know, political rundown of of what's going on. There's no Ensign Taggart speech coming from those cats. We, we, you know, we get what affects them on a day-to-day basis and then we move on. And what seems to affect them on a day-to-day basis is Taxes. Taxes, yeah. And so we get to, they get to question about taxes. And it's interesting because Quoth says, you know, this is the first time in my life I've ever paid taxes. Yeah, You know, yeah. because for most of my life I was a vagrant, basically. I, I never owned anything. <laughs> I never owned anything. Was, you know. And he says, you know, I understand why it galls people to have and, someone come in and charge you money for owning something. For the privilege of owning something. Well, and then he said, and I wrote this down. He said, now I know what sort of dark desires lead a group Mm. of men to wait beside the road, killing tax collectors Mm -hmm. in open defiance of the king. Mm -hmm. Leads me to believe we're going to get, leads me to believe that this bandit hunting expedition is not going to end with them stumbling upon a campsite, waging a big battle, seeing who rolls initiative, you know, and then they go home with the loot. Mm -hmm. It's going to be more in depth than that it's Mm going to be more involved which is you know what i've kind of always expected anyway i didn't expect that this would there'd be an epic sword battle and everyone would go home Mm -hmm. you know and that's not what we're going to get which is another kind of you know defying of the normal tropes all right so chapter 86 is called the broken road the broken road and hespi tells a story right 
So in the story, there's a boy named Jax mm-hmm. who falls in love with the moon. So again, now we have a story within a story, and we have the moon yeah. being mentioned. So that's kind of like a double pin in well, the that. Other, the other thing that was interesting to me about it is, quote said, I've heard all the stories. Whether, I, whether I've heard the mm. details of the stories, mm-hmm. you know, the details may be different, but the rhythm, the archetype, you know, the, the when I hear a story, I, I generally know where it's going to go. So when I hear a story that I haven't heard before, it really creates some excitement for me. And so she begins to tell the story. But the thing that is interesting to me is that the story gets interrupted by Dayton. And the way he interrupts is by saying, doesn't this sound a little too familiar? Mm-hmm. Like we've heard this way too many times. And I'm having a hard time in my brain kind of rectifying those two seemingly contrary statements with him sort of saying, this is like all the other stories we've heard. I'm bored of this and quote saying, this is a story I've never heard before. So I'm not quite sure what I'm missing there. Well, the way I read it is the part of the story where he interrupted was she was talking about the character tromping endlessly, pointlessly, through the woods. And that's when he said, well, that sounds familiar. That's oh. what we're doing here. And then they get into this argument of, so this is something he's been complaining about, them tromping through the woods. Oh, that's why he said that. Okay, I right. totally missed that. Okay. Because then Kvothe replies, well, hey, then he starts arguing with, and really it's, Hespi gets mad because everyone else was allowed to interrupt her story, but everyone else has made some comments here, but if he makes a comment, she's like, Rrr. And so Quill steps in and was like, hey, do you have any better ideas? And then they all just decide to go to bed, you know? Well, they, um, they have a discussion about hairy balls. That's right. The hairy balls. That was amazing. That's <laughs> true. Yeah. And what I love was, so Dayton says, Quill shouldn't be in charge of the mission because he doesn't have hair on his balls. Yeah. And Quill <laughs> says, well, I'm sure if the mayor knew how hairy your balls were, he would have put you in charge. <laughs> and then Tempe comes in and says... What? What is balls? And then he says, why is the mayor looking at hairy balls? And everyone laughs. And then everything's better. And Quote looks over at Tempe. And Tempe makes a, whatever hand motion he makes. So Quote knows that he did that on purpose to break up the tension. Mm. And it just shows a very subtle understanding of the situation and what's going on. I didn't pick up on a lot of these things, these little kind of subtleties in the interactions that you did. Mm-hmm. I read this stuff twice, so good on you. Thank you. Maybe I'm just hunting for Amir and Chandrian and Barbarians. Well, yeah, and I think when you are going through this and you don't know, like it's just kind of a mon- monotonous plot-wise part of the story, especially after all the action that we've been through, it's easy to just kind of be like, okay, okay, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? If well, and you feel it like again, it's right around the corner. You're like... Right around the corner from something interesting happening. Well, you know, it's like you always say you liked Feast for Crows better the second or third time you've read it. Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like I've liked this book better the second and third time I've read it. Yeah, I can see that. I I was thinking today that 
I don't know when I'll get the chance to do this, but I kind of can't wait to go back and read it from the beginning to the end without ha- without having to take 30 weeks to do it. Yes. Which I- I'll be honest with you, the number of books I've reread, you can count on both hands. Right. Like there's not that many books that I've reread. I read it, I enjoy it, I move on. You know, and there are books like A Song of Ice and Fire and The Lord of Ri- Lord of the Rings and Catcher in the Rye and a handful of other books that I've read over and over again, but only a handful. And this is one I think I'll read again. So that puts it in an elusive, exclusive club. That's awesome. So, you know, Patrick Rothfuss, you're welcomed. <laughs> We're giving P. Roth all kinds of shout outs tonight. Well, the last couple times sure I was listening. I was kind of kind of a dick to him, so <laughs> give him something positive. We love him. So well, let's see the, a couple of notes that I had um, on this, and and I and it, it's not a podcast if I don't get my tinfoil hat out. Get it out. If I don't break it out, fold the little corners nice and neat, mm-hmm. and place it gently upon my head, then you know we haven't had a Duke and Duchess podcast. So. I'm looking in the story of Jax to try to find the relevance of the story. And, of course, we don't get the whole story, right? But we talk about the moon and him chasing after a moon. And, of course, we know he's never going to catch the moon. So sort of like we discussed and speculated earlier, what's the thing that's going to burn you? Is the moon Denna or is the moon the Chandrian? Or is it Revenge? I have a whole list of times and page numbers that Denna was compared to the moon. So it's Denna. <laughs> so, so there you go. I'm just saying, I think it's very interesting. Well, we got to get that How written down and on the she is website. Compared, well, I'm waiting to the, I'm done. Oh, the whole. Good point. Everything. Yeah, good point. Good point. Book. But I will, I've been, every time I see it, I am putting it down. Because it is a lot that she is compared to the moon. Yeah. So the other thing is they talk about how Jax had terrible luck. Terrible luck. Right. Perhaps he was luckless. Ooh. Tinfoil. Tinfoiler. The other thing is they said that he had a hell, I mean a demon dogging his steps. And it, it caused me to think, you know, we've talked about all the things and stories that everybody thinks aren't real. Are the luckless family, lackless family, actually literally being harangued by a demon? Well, we know that demons are real. Y- yeah. Because we saw one in the, the form of the skin dancer that attacked the the waystone. Yeah. Of course, he was all banged up. He was all banged up. But we know that they exist Something in this universe. Something wrong in demon world. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, completely completely random but but the juxtaposition of the discussion about luck and then the idea that he had a demon that was chasing him around kind of caused me to put those two things together and think oh, maybe there's something going on there and then I thought wait a minute what if the what if the four plate door is not meant to keep us out of anything what if the four plate door is harboring a demon Ooh. Interesting. Keeping something out. Maybe that's what's in the door in the Lackless family. Maybe that's what the Lackless family are in charge of. Maybe that door goes somewhere and they've been entrusted with it. Hmm. I don't remember 
I, I don't know. Hmm. But yeah, I think this story is important and the the character of Jax is probably important. I think the fact that Hespi says that it has a rhythm to it. She has to start from the beginning. She can't just, she's not just, she has the the words memorized and again, the rhythm and the cadence. So this is a story that's been passed down Mm -hmm. through generations. Yeah. And the, the phrase in particular, the broken road kind of gets enforced a little bit. Not only is it the title of the chapter, but she says, you know, once upon a time, there was a boy named Jax. He lived in an old house at the end of a broken road. And Dayton's like, a broken road? And she said, that's the wording in the story. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I feel like that's there's something symbolic there. Yeah. So we'll see. So the boy Jax, who lives on the broken road, is dogged by bad luck, is never happy and never smiles. And he is a run-in with a tinker who offers to trade him all of his packs if he can't give him something that will make him happy. And, of course, he fails because Jax is a dick. You know. Joyless. If he. Sad. Yeah. Little man. If he had a baby hippopotamus in one of those bags, (laughs) then we wouldn't be here. Totally different story. Completely different story at that point. Jax would be like, fuck the man. I got a baby hippopotamus. I got a baby hippopotamus. Have you seen a baby hippopotamus? I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Listen, everyone, Google baby hippopotamus. Only baby hippopotamus will do. You will not be disappointed. (laughs) It's worth the field trip. It's worth the field trip. Anyway, he does not have a baby hippopotamus. But he gives Jax Jax a pair of spectacles. And Jax is then able for the first time to see the moon and the stars and decides he wants the moon. So the tinker is forced to give up his packs and he's all pissed off. And he takes the tinker's hat rudely, <laughs> which everyone knows is bad luck to be rude to a tinker. Absolutely. And off he sets to find the moon, but we don't get to find out if he finds it or not because we get interrupted. We get interrupted and then you had to stop reading. Uh huh. That's true. And that's it. That's the end of our section. So are you ready for predictions? Predict it up. All right, so my first prediction is we're not going to get to hear the end of the story. Okay. This is one that I'm probably wrong about, but they've been making an awful lot of noise in that forest, and it was highlighted just how loud and boisterous their laughing was. I think they're going to get found, and I think they're going to get found very quickly. Um, So it wouldn't at all surprise me if we're going to run into the bandits on the very next chapter because they tipped them off to Mm. it. Now, who knows? It's not the first time they sat around and laughed and made noise. So, so there's no necessarily, not necessarily any reason to think this would be any different, other than we're kind of at the edge of the map and feel like something's going to happen. So, that's one. A couple others here. One, and this is kind of going back to things we talked about in other chapters, but I feel like Arladin the Bard, when he married Natalia Lackless ended up having a price put on his head Mm. that kind of drove him off. Might also be why he had to choose a patron who could kind of protect him. Mm -hmm. So that's one. Uh, The next one is we've been talking about Braden slash Master Ash, and I've been alluding that he works for the Amir. He's one of the Order Amir, et cetera. Last time I said Amir or the Chandrian. 
I'm beginning to think it's more likely that it's the Chandrian than the Amir. Hmm. And I'm almost thinking, and, and I hope I'm not falling for some obvious things here, but I'm beginning to think he might work directly for Cinder. Interesting. Why do you think that? Well, I mean, this has been out there for a long time, but Ash and Cinder, and then the fact that he is completely colorless. Right. You know, is just some sort of anecdotal evidence that would lead you to believe that. Yeah. I think it's a good speculation. That's my speculation, is that he works for Cinder, or he's trying to court Cinder. That's, you know, he's trying to summons him, but somehow related to the Changerian, and more specifically, Cinder. Also, I believe at some point, this is really kind of going to endgame stuff here, but there's going to be a religious-based coup at some hmm. point that somehow it's going to tie into the Talons, the priest, or or trying to destroy them or something along those lines, but it'll be closely tied to the church or to the religions, whatever happens. All right. That's a good prediction, too. So, yeah. So those are my predictions. Nice. Now, um, want to talk about interactions? Hang on one second. Check. Because we told them what we're doing next week. Oh, no, we haven't told them. Next week, we're going to go over chapters 87 through 93. Got that written down? I'm running it down now. All right. I have to know where I can stop. All right. Now let's do interactions. All right. So listener interactions. My favorite Co- part. A couple of things about listener interactions. Um, one is it's getting harder and harder to keep up with it. So, and part of the reason why I mentioned that is because I know for a fact I've missed stuff. Yeah, I think so. So, and, and there have also been times where I've chosen not to bring something up because it didn't necessarily relate to anything on the podcast, you know, just a one-off conversation I had with somebody or, um, or related to Game of Thrones. So I chose not to put it in this podcast, etc. But then even beyond that, I know there's things I've missed. So if I've missed you, I apologize. It was never, it was not an intentional slight for sure. Um, so that's, that's point number one. The second point is, I think now that we're getting towards the end of Wise Man's Fear, it seems to be that people are having a harder time not spoiling us. There's just been a couple of like subtle little things that people have mentioned on the Twitter page or on Facebook that are slightly spoilery. And I'm just asking folks to just be careful because it's hard to remember at at this point what's happened and what hasn't happened. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, you know, and like I said, we're so close to the end anyway that most people are, you know, they're drawing upon all their knowledge because we're talking about things that are kind of bumping right up against the end of the book. Everything's coming to a head. Yeah, exactly. You know, so I just want to caution people, try and be careful. Um, We have people on the Twitter who are following along. They follow us on Twitter, but they haven't caught up to where we are. Right. You know, so just, let's just try to be careful about that stuff. So enough of that. Let's get down to it. All right. So first interaction I want to talk about is uh, from Mandy of Caster Quest, who Caster Quest, because of the hurricane, decided they needed to take a short little sabbatical. And one of the things I thought that was very sweet is that Mandy of Caster Quest put out there a recommendation for folks who have been listening to them for years to follow us and give us a listen while they are taking care of the things they need to take care of. 
to get back on track. That was pretty awesome. And I am definitely sending my thoughts and good mojo that way to all those folks down there. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I thought that was very sweet and I wanted to to recognize that. Now, the good news is that by the time this podcast comes out, Cast Request will be, they'll either have their next episode out or they'll be pretty close to getting their, their next episode out. So they're going to be back online pretty quickly, so you won't miss a whole lot. But if new folks have come over as a part of that, and I know a couple have, welcome. Thanks for hanging out with us. Yeah. We appreciate it. All right. So uh, next I want to bring out and talk about C.M. Hayden, who is at Cam underscore Hayden. That's C-A-M underscore H-A-Y-D-E-N. He said, Scrabble, what? And then he also was, we were talking about kind of the beautiful game analogy, and he thinks that more of that will come around in book three. Uh, Let's see. C.M. Hayden is also the author of the Arclight Saga, which is not something I've read. and I don't think I've read that one either. No, and you can find it at arclightsaga.com, A-R-C-L-I-G-H-T-S-A-G-A.com. So go and check it out. Uh, lots of interactions from Theo. I love Theo gets in and really kind of gives us a lot of thoughts. He always has such interesting thoughts yeah he does and so we had a lot from him just a couple things i want to highlight he agreed with us that the killing of the flits does not necessarily equal the killing of a king that we agree in this this case it's going to be something literal but then he had a lot of really good observations about the penitent king and the idea you know what that might mean mean and then he liked our kind of batman denna analogy but he said he also really hated the writing during the argument. So when they were having their argument, felt like it was forced, and that was his least favorite part. Yes, I can see why someone would think that. Yeah. AD at Axiom Delver uh, said, Pineapple on pizza is gross. Timeline Traveler at Stranger's Escape uh, was somebody who was saying that they really need to make a television show or a movie out of the King Killer Chronicles, and I was able to enlighten her that it's going to happen. Yes. Don't know when, but it's going to happen. Uh, Lewis at Lewis JK87 likes happy endings. Adam at LFC Adam88185 uh, said he'd never caught the Natalia Lackless stuff. Isn't it exciting the first time you catch it? Yeah. So exciting. Absolutely. Uh, Ryan King at Rexa Liquid, that's R E X A Liquid. Uh, finished Name of the Win and is excited to get started on the Wise Man's Fear episodes with us. Uh, Daryl at Sea Delicious said, Why all the Starbuck hate? I don't know, man. I ain't got a good reason for it. <laughs> you know, I'm sure if we went, I haven't, we haven't watched, we haven't watched, um, what's the name of that damn show? Battlestar Galactica. Battlestar Galactica. We haven't yeah. watched, Battle, ba- watched Battlestar Galactica for years. I mean, we, Basically finished it when the episode, when it finished on TV and haven't watched it since. I'm sure if I go... I've watched it a little bit. Have you? Okay. I'm sure if I go back, I could remember why. Uh, and you would still be just as irritated. Maybe not. I've I told him it's because you only have room for one crazy hot bitch in your life. And that's me. <laughs> Who? But uh, Captain was a... Captain at- Janeway is neither crazy nor hot nor a bitch. No, she was kind of a bitch. I'm sorry. I don't like Captain Janeway. <laughs> I... 
Yes. I have strong See? feelings. I, I, I sometimes worry that makes me like a closet misogynist, but I don't think so. I just think that she was a sucky starship captain and I did not like her hairdo. And I'm, I'm sorry. I'm being really mean <laughs> on the podcast. I'm trying not, I try not I to like be. Captain Janeway. You liked Captain Janeway? Yeah. I think so. From what I remember. Just need to process that for a second. How about I move on? It's fine. Uh, Izzy Kennedy Izzy <laughs> at Isabella CND uh, said she's catching up. She's on episode 17. So when you get here, shout out. That's right. She also thinks there's going to be some major plot twists when we get to book three, which I, th- I think we all think that too. Uh, she also sent a tweet to us from P. Roth, which included the artwork for Ambrose. And and Patrick uh, Rothfuss said in the tweet, the art direction was simple. I said, draw, I'm paraphrasing. I said, draw somebody that makes me want to slap them and then put a hat on them that makes me want to slap them again. And so this art that we're talking about oh, yeah. is part of a Kickstarter that Patrick Rothfuss is starting where he's got a beautiful, several beautiful sets of playing cards with original art, not by him, by um, an artist named Echo Chernick. I believe that's her name. I hope I got it right. Design these cards, and each each face card has a different character of the book. And the artwork is spectacular. Very good. Yeah. Spectacular. So if you go to his website, patrickrothfussblog.com, you can find a link to the Kickstarter. And at this stage in the game, you can get... There are different tiers of donating, and you mm-hmm. can get, you know, either one or two of the decks with these extra cards as well. You know, you can get me one for Christmas. Put it on a list and leave it out. I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> All right, good to know. All right, and um, so yeah, it's really, really. But really that good. was a really funny way of describing it. Really was Ambrose, it. and the picture does make you want to slap him. Yeah. So my question is. Is that what you envisioned Elodin looking like? I think it was similar to what I... I mean, you know me. I envisioned Elodin as David Tennant. Mm-hmm. So I would say, yeah. Now, he did, the picture on the card didn't look just like him, but sort of young, tousled hair, barefoot, kind of carefree looking. Yes, absolutely. Gotcha, gotcha. How about you? You did not agree or... You know, it's funny because when you describe it, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But when I looked at it, I was like, no. But of course, you're going to have that. So right. I, I didn't like the Debbie one most. I didn't see Debbie. Oh, okay, yeah. Did she look like Kristen Bell? No. I'm not going to like it. <laughs> see, and see, nothing against the artwork. <laughs> if it didn't look like Kristen Bell, no one was going to be happy. <laughs> Just put a picture of Kristen Bell on the card, you guys. So come on, really, seriously, the deck of cars is awesome. Let's not let's not t- let's not be negative about it. All right, um, uh, Izzy Kennedy also liked the love the infographic that you put out there. Yay! It was done just for her. Like I, I know she likes the graphs. Yeah. So um, also, her sister Juliana Kennedy uh, said she just kind of caught our shout out to her. Um, so several, many, many weeks from now, when you get to this, here's another shout out. And by the way, Juliana Kennedy is a very talented illustrator, not just, um, illustration, but also logo work, et cetera. And you can check out her work at com, And that's J U L I 
A-N-A-C-O-N-I-D-I.com. Then we also had an inter- interaction on Facebook from Curtis W. Frank, who is catching up and was um, excited to reach out to us. And then he reminded us that uh, it's Simon, not Simmons. I will never stop being able, I, I will never be able to stop saying Simmons. I don't think I will it's either. It's going to keep, ha- I'm so, I apologize. I was going to try. We recognize that he's right. When I listen to the podcast and I, I actually really don't listen back to our podcast. I can't I can't listen to the whole thing through. But when I sometimes listen to bits of it, there are things I'm like, I have to stop saying that. I have to stop saying um. <laughs> and then I try and it's like I, I'm having a seizure. If I can't say um, it's like I just completely freeze. So anyway, Simmons, I'm hopefully going to s- try and stop saying that. I don't think I, I don't think I don't know that I'd be, be able Simmons to. for forever. I'm going to get a tattoo of it. Simmons forever. <laughs> Simmons and fella forever. Aw. Aw. Simmons. <laughs> Not Sella, as in the Sella flower? That's what this book is all about. Now it's Fimmons. All right, fine. All right. So I have one more thing, but did you have anything? Nothing. Nothing? Okay. All right. So I have a little something, something. Oh, boy. So just a couple of quick trivia questions that I wrote. Ooh. All right. So think about your answers carefully. So here we are. First question. We believe there are seven members of the Chandrian. Name something else that comes in a group of seven. Well, this isn't book trivia. This is like life trivia. Just roll with it. Von Trapp children. Success. Oh, oh, we're too far away for the hands. Hold on. We got to try that again. Okay. All right. I don't really know if there are seven. Are there? Yeah, there are seven Van Trapp children. Yep. Damn, you're good. I am good. I like it. (laughs) All right. So next one. We know that Ambrose is from Vint. Fela's from Modeg. Where's Patrick Rothfuss from? I do not know. I can't even guess. Seattle. I can tell you it's where they eat the rind on the little cheese. Doesn't help. Nope. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. You got it. I did get it. Look at you. (laughs) Try it again. There we go. All right. Last question. Patrick Rothfuss writes strong, complex female characters. Why bitches be tripping? <laughs> That's not an answer. Bitches be tripping because blokes be wigging. God damn. You're good at this. You're good at this game. <laughs> all right. So that's all that I have. Yay. I like the trivia. All right. Good. Thank you. Thank you. So anything else? Got nothing. All right. Good night, everybody. Good night. Good night.